0: A Podcast One production. It's the 15th of July, 2016. About a week earlier, a tiny company named Niantic dropped the most popular mobile game of all time, Pokemon Go. Australia got Pokemon Go about 48 hours ahead of the rest of the world, and I remember the weekend it was released because I was walking through the city. I saw groups of young folks everywhere, smartphones held out in front of them. They were chatting amongst themselves. They were hunting for Pokemon. They were exploring the city and playing the game. Now, one of the clever features built into the game allowed players to pay a buck to lay a lure for a Pokemon. Now, that would only last a few hours. But in that period of time, a player had much greater chances of capturing a rare Pokemon. And not only that player, any other player in the vicinity could see the lure and lie in wait to capture a Pokemon. So when someone dropped a lure, other players were bound to show up. Now, that's what happened in the Sydney suburb of Rhodes. One night, a few players visited a small public park in the suburb, dropped a lure, and waited. And a few other players dropped by, waiting for Pokemon. And they messaged a few friends who came by, and messaged a few more friends who came by, and messaged a few more friends, and, well, you can see where I'm going with this. But best to hear it in the words of those players.
1: What makes road's the place to be? I think... It's just because there's the three spot uh, the three pokey stops and everybody just comes down here yeah. and the more people the rarer the pokemon yeah. so I live in Hornsby personally so I come all the way here Crowd of people has also attracted the attention of the media and law enforcement has also been stepped up issuing parking fines and directing traffic The local council have responded by reminding people that while parks are to be enjoyed they are in a residential area. Despite all this, hundreds of people have still turned up in the hopes of catching a rare Pokemon.
0: What might have been a harmless diversion the first night, and the second, and possibly the third, eventually became a real nuisance. A fortnight later, an article in the Sydney Morning Herald proclaimed...
1: At last, Rhodes can finally get some sleep. Disruptions caused by Pokemon Go players swamping the riverside suburb ceased around 7.30pm on Monday when it became apparent the vital Pokestops had been removed from Peg Patterson Park, which is surrounded by apartments. Hundreds of gamers had been gathering in the park each night since the craze began on July 6 because it had three intersecting Pokestops, allowing gamers to catch large numbers of quality Pokemon. The latest update to the app appears to have removed the three Pokestops. Residents celebrated the end of the chaos, which included traffic jams, rubbish left strewn in the park, driveways being blocked, noise until the early hours of the morning, and children's play equipment being used by adult Pokémon players.
0: Something happened with Pokémon GO, something that had never happened before. The virtual world, which was always over there somewhere, managed to invade the real world, with real-world consequences and causing real-world problems. That pointed toward a future where the real world and the virtual world get so mixed up it's almost impossible to tell where the virtual world ends and the real world begins. On this episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll explore the blurring boundary between the fake and the real as we continue our tour of the last days of reality. Go all the way back to 60 years ago, to the first generation of jet fighters. These were incredible pieces of machinery, and among the most complicated bits of kit ever manufactured. The pilot in the cockpit needed to manage a lot of information displayed on 50 different dials spread out in front of them. Every one of those dials had an important bit of information. Every one of them were key to keeping the fighter in the air and the pilot alive. But it was too much. Information overload. A pilot couldn't keep all of those dials in mind. He couldn't do that and be expected to participate in a dogfight with an enemy aircraft. The pilot was either going to kill themselves in the process, distracted by the fight into ignoring something they shouldn't be ignoring, or they'd fail to engage the enemy. So with the jet fighter, humanity had finally made a machine too complicated for anyone to operate. That was a problem. And it kicked off a search for a solution, one that took a long time to develop because it had to be built on understandings of human perception, psychology, symbology, and a few things no one had even thought of yet, interface and information design. Fifty years ago, this December, we saw the first pass at a solution to the problem of machines that were too complex for humans. They nicknamed it the Sword of Damocles because it hung down from the ceiling, dangling right over a person's head with a contraption that you could put over your eyes, sort of like an overgrown pair of binoculars. What you saw through those binoculars was unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. You saw the world around you because these lenses were partially see-through, but you also saw images generated by a computer program overlaid on the real world. As you moved around, as you dragged the Sword of Damocles around, the images moved correspondingly, as if they were placed in the room and not just floating in front of your eyes. That science experiment, funded by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, was the invention not of just a single industry, but of a whole range of industries— This experiment required interactive three-dimensional computer graphics, something that was invented for the Sword of Damocles and is now a basic part of every video game console and every smartphone. The experiment also required accurate sensing of where you were looking, orientation of your eyes. That, too, is a basic part of every smartphone, so your smartphone can tell whether you're looking at the screen in portrait or landscape orientation. The experiment required accurate sensing of position, something that we do now on every smartphone via GPS. Everything in the Sword of Damocles was new, and every element became a multi-billion dollar industry in its own right. It's one of the most important pieces of technology ever invented. It's right up there with the steam engine. But it's not well known, because at the time it didn't make much public impact. However... The military knew what to do with the technology and through the 1970s created a suite of technologies for jet fighters that turned the pilot's helmet into a display that helped them digest all of the data generated by these increasingly capable aircraft in a way that made it possible to both fly and fight simultaneously. Now the military can afford to pay almost any price to keep a $50 million jet fighter in the sky. A display projecting data into a pilot's helmet, that might cost a million dollars. But if it turned that $50 million aircraft into a usable weapon, it was worth every penny. For two decades, the military invested heavily in this new technology. This technology that augmented the real world with additional information. It got better, but it never really got cheaper. Now, I have a bit of a confession In our interview with Tony Parisi on episode 6 of this season, I never disclosed that Tony and I have been working on virtual reality technologies together for almost 30 years. In 1990, I learned about virtual reality, and it's been a big part of my work ever since. In 1990, VR systems cost millions, sometimes tens of millions of dollars. The biggest customers for those sorts of systems at those prices were the military. I wanted to change that. So I started the world's first consumer virtual reality company, dedicated to creating a system that people would be able to use in their own homes. It was a big ask. We had to invent our way to a lot of cheap solutions to some very expensive problems. Problems that had never been solved because there was never any need to make them cheap. But we solved them one by one. And after we solved the first few, we got an offer we couldn't refuse. Turns out that another company, a much bigger one, had our same vision for consumer virtual reality. Now, at that point, Sega was on top of the video gaming world, having recently dethroned Nintendo as the king of the console. They wanted to plug their console into a VR headset and sell millions of them to kids all around the world. And they wanted to license our technology, the tech that made VR a lot cheaper... And sell it to everyone. We said yes, and we helped Sega design the Virtua VR. Now, you've probably never seen a Virtua VR. You probably have never even heard of it. And although Sega announced it with lots of fanfare back in 1993, it never went to market. Why? Well, when they built the first few units, they gave them to kids to test, and it turned out that the kids started getting sick. It's really easy to make someone motion sick in virtual reality. Why is that? Well, virtual reality sits very close to the body. It covers the eyes and the ears. And if that relationship isn't absolutely perfect, your body and your brain can act as though you've eaten something bad and then trigger the reflex that makes you vomit. If you've ever been seasick or motion sick, you know how this feels. And VR is very good at making people feel motion sick. So despite our best efforts and the energies of a multi-billion dollar video gaming giant, we couldn't bring consumer VR to market. Now at that point, VR died, well, sort of. Here's what Tony Parisi had to say about it.
2: So you had your consumer startup, and then we came along and worked on 3D for the Internet together shortly after that. And, you know, long story short, it was very early. Um, The ideas we can envision based on the kind of technologies that are breakthrough take a long time to implement sometimes. And in the case of VR, that's definitely true. And while... It did fall off of the radar and, you know, fell out of mindshare with the mass population. The fact is that a technology like VR never really died. It just went back into hibernation. It had to develop itself for a lot longer. A lot of technology breakthroughs had to happen to make virtual reality the way it is today viable. VR never really died. It just
0: changed form. A year after Sega had their spectacular failure with Virtua VR, Sony announced the PlayStation and the 3D graphics revolution began. Overnight, technologies that had cost millions of dollars dropped in price a thousandfold, then 10,000fold, and finally 100,000fold. So, three things a widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. Are you getting it?
3: These are not three separate devices. This is
1: one device.
0: iPhone changed everything. Back in Series 1, I talked about how important smartphones had become and how they were about to become the key enablers of augmented reality. Lots of folks first had an experience of augmented reality last year when Pokemon Go became the biggest mobile game in history. Millions of people stared into their smartphones, seeing creatures to capture seamlessly blended into the world around them. That mixing of the real and computer generated, that is augmented reality. And it's coming to every iPhone 6S, iPhone 7, iPhone 8, and iPhone 10 with the release of iOS 11. But the new iPhones, they're specially designed for augmented reality. Point a camera at a table. That table becomes a Minecraft world on the screen of your smartphone. Point it at the sky, reveal a hidden rainbow. Point it at the wall and it lets you know exactly how far it is from wall to wall, as if you were using a tape measure. It's very early days for augmented reality. But we're going to find more uses for it than anyone can yet imagine. It will allow us to write over the real world, add to it, even take away the bits we don't like. It's going to change the way we see the world over the next billion seconds. Today, augmented reality works through the screen of your smartphone. That's how Pokemon Go works. The smartphone camera takes in the scene, the processor on the smartphone maps the scene, adds in a few elements from the Pokemon Go game, and then projects the augmented scene onto the display of the smartphone. That all works quite well. But it's not as convincing as having that screen placed directly over your eyes where it can seamlessly blend the real world and the virtual world. That's a much harder job, as Tony Parisi noted.
2: Being that I'm one of these reluctant futurists, um, I'm okay being wrong 95% of the time. So I don't mind making some guesses here. And I will disclaim right away that I don't track the hardware trends. I'm more of a software and infrastructure person uh, by by trade, by disposition. I don't track these hardware trends. Uh, I can tell you what Unity's partners or some of my friends in the world of XR would have to say about this uh, and some of the other experts in the field. There is some debate. There's some debate. There's There's some hope that we could get a lightweight pair of fashionable glasses on your face, And be able to see that kind of reality within five years. There's others who say that's going to take at least 15 years. We could split the difference and say it's somewhere in the middle. I mean, there are even really debates because some people would think, well, it's all got to fit in your glasses. Or other people would say, well, no, probably what will happen is you'll have some glasses, but there'll still be a box like your phone connected to it with wires or something but it's something you can carry in your pocket not you know you're not lugging around a desktop computer so if you have that portable setup and those glasses you know maybe that these things can happen more quickly that way because then you don't have to figure out how to miniaturize electronics enough to get them into just a pair of glasses it's really sort of a combination of that hip pocket plus you know the glasses and maybe even stuff in the network that's computing it for you so there's less you know load on the device you're carrying around
0: Companies have been working on these augmented reality spectacles for years, and none have been working harder than a secretive firm known as Magic Leap. Graham Devine, who heads up gaming at Magic Leap, made a bold prediction for where we'll be in a decade's time.
3: In 10 years, when mixed reality should really be everywhere. Builder often, Graham, that's crazy. But it's not. I mean, the smartphone, the the iPhone 1 came out 10 years ago, and now we all have one and we can't live without it. So 10-year revolutions are possible.
0: It's a hard problem, but Magic Leap has incredible resources. They have raised more than $2 billion from firms such as Google, Alibaba. Alibaba is the Chinese e-commerce giant that throws shade on Amazon they're so big and Japanese Investor SoftBank. They even have money from the Saudi Family Investment Fund. Magic Leap are working hard to create those magic augmented reality spectacles and announced their first product on the 11th of July 2018, the very same day we recorded this show. They're trying to get a leap on their competitors, much bigger companies with a lot more money and a real need to bring augmented reality to every head in the world. After the break, we'll hear from those competitors. Welcome back to The Next Billion Seconds, where we're exploring the past and future of augmented reality. Before the break, I mentioned that augmented reality pioneers magically have some big, powerful competitors. Let's hear from one of them.
3: So that's why I'm so excited about augmented reality. Because it's going to make it so that we can create all kinds of things that until today have only been possible in the digital world, and we're going to be able to interact with them and explore them together. So at last year's F8, we talked about our 10-year roadmap uh, to give everyone in the world the power to share anything they want with anyone. And one of the key long-term technologies that we talked about is augmented reality. Now, we all know where we want this to get eventually, right? We we want glasses or eventually contact lenses that look and feel normal, but that let us overlay all kinds of information and digital objects on top of the real world. So we can just be sitting here, and we want to play chess. Snap. Here's a a chess board, and we can play together. Uh, You want to watch TV? We can put a digital TV on that wall. And instead of being a piece of hardware, it's a $1 app instead of a $500 piece of equipment. So think about how many of the things that we have in our lives actually don't need to be physical. They can be digital. And think about how much better and more affordable and accessible they're going to be when they are.
0: That's Mark Zuckerberg giving a keynote to Facebook's developer conference last year. Zuck makes it absolutely clear that the next billion seconds for Facebook are in augmented reality.
3: I used to think that glasses were going to be the first mainstream augmented reality platform, and that would get them you know maybe five or 10 years from now, we'd get the form factor that we all want. But over the last couple of years, we've started to see primitive versions of each of these use cases on our phones and cameras. So for displaying information, uh, we've all seen people take photos and write text on them or circle things or draw arrows to highlight information. For digital objects, we have games like Pokemon, where uh, you can overlay a digital Pokemon on top of the real world in front of you. And for enhancements, we have things like face filters and style transfers to make our images and videos more fun. Now, a lot of people look at this stuff, and it seems so basic, right? and you, you ask, you know, maybe this is just you know, what kids are into doing these days. But you know, we look at this, and we see something different. We see the beginning of a new platform.
0: Zuckerberg delivered that message at Facebook's high point before all of the bad news about fake news and Cambridge Analytica and manipulating vulnerable teenagers came to light when the future looked bright and rosy for Facebook. So why is augmented reality such a big deal for Facebook? They say it so can help them on their mission to help the world share even better. They might even believe that. But there's another side to augmented reality, something we shouldn't overlook. In order to work, augmented reality has to be really aware of the world around you. It has to scan where you are. It has to scan the walls, the floor, the tables, the people. It has to know where all of it is so that when it adds something, it does it in a way that doesn't look weird. That means augmented reality is the best surveillance technology we've ever come up with. It's not just a camera recording an image and sending it off somewhere. It's actually aware of where you are and what's around you all of the time that you're using it. That kind of data is necessary for augmented reality. That kind of data is a goldmine for a company that monetizes everything it can learn about you a company like Facebook. Facebook wants augmented reality because it helps them to know even more about their users, know where they are, what they're doing, who they're doing it with, what's going on around them. All of that has to be provided to Facebook in order for Facebook to deliver the kinds of augmented reality experiences it's now building. So is this a tool for sharing? Or is this a clever way for Facebook to gather data on users who are becoming more afraid about the amount of data they're handing over to Facebook? Possibly it's a bit of both. We already know that Facebook uses its artificial intelligence profiling to measure user moods. And they will certainly use the data gathered from augmented reality to improve those measurements. But Facebook might go beyond that. They might be tempted to use augmented reality to manipulate the mood of their users. That sounds crazy, right? Except they've already been caught doing it. Four years ago, back in 2014. Here's an excerpt from an article in The Guardian about that. Facebook, the world's biggest
1: social networking site, is facing a storm of protest after it revealed it had discovered how to make users feel happier or sadder with a few computer keystrokes. It has published details of a vast experiment in which it manipulated information posted on 689,000 users' homepages and found it could make people feel more positive or negative through a process of emotional contagion. In a study with academics from Cornell and the University of California, Facebook filtered users' news feeds, the flow of comments, videos, pictures and web links posted by other people in their social network. One test reduced users' exposure to their friends' positive emotional content, resulting in fewer positive posts of their own. Another test reduced exposure to negative emotional content, and the opposite happened. The study concluded, Emotions expressed by friends via online social networks influence our own moods, constituting to our own knowledge the first experimental evidence for massive-scale emotional contagion via social networks. Lawyers, internet activists and politicians said this weekend that the mass experiment in emotional manipulation was scandalous, spooky and disturbing.
0: Facebook knows how you're feeling. And Facebook knows how to change the way you're feeling just by changing what they pop into your feed. I mean, it makes sense. Feed people happy stories and they'll be happier. Feed them sad stories, they'll be sadder. Not much magic to that. But do we really want Facebook to have that kind of power over us? Facebook apologized after this incident, of course. They always apologize. They apologized after they were caught out peddling data on vulnerable teenagers to Australian advertisers. They apologized after Cambridge Analytica had been exposed for using 55 million Facebook profiles for their voter targeting campaigns. They always apologize and they never really change. They're out there gathering data on users and using that data to manipulate users. Augmented reality kicks that up a notch. Put on a pair of augmented reality spectacles from Facebook and presto, your feed has come to life in the world around you. You'll see just what Facebook wants you to see to keep you engaged and wearing those spectacles. Just as they've done with the feed on your smartphone. They'll make it irresistible. Facebook is very good at that. And when it becomes irresistible, the real world, well, that will lose some of its savor. It won't be as fun. It won't be as meaningful as the world behind those Facebook spectacles. And people won't want to take them off. Now, that's not some imaginary dystopia. That's what's already happened on two billion smartphones. It's just that the screen is about to disappear and become invisible. That screen will become our world. And that's why we're in the last days of reality. There's a really great video that was published back in 2016 that gives us a good look into what this world might be like. It's the story of a young woman going about her day-to-day work. She's a personal shopper for rich people. And she's wearing augmented reality spectacles. Sometimes her world becomes a video game. Sometimes it's a fancy and useful version of Google Maps. Sometimes it's a shopping list. And sometimes it breaks down. At the end of the video, her augmented reality spectacles crash. And finally, you can see the real world as it is. A dingy, broken-down supermarket. I've been working with the ideas in the last days of reality for over a year. It all began on the first day of May back in 2017 when I appeared on the project to discuss what we just learned about Facebook manipulating teenagers.
1: Mark, thanks very much for joining us tonight. If there's truth to these allegations, is this behaviour ethical?
0: it is not ethical these people these kids are basically sharing because they feel like they're in a safe space that they can share facebook is taking their emotions which are honestly giving and effectively using their emotions against them using their emotions to wedge them into doing things that they might not want to do that kicked off 6 months of research that led to an 8000 word cover story in meanjin and a lot of deep thinking about where we're headed over the next billion seconds. I don't see a lot of easy answers here, and I don't pretend to be peddling any easy solutions. I reckon our first job is just to be aware of where we are and what's in play and take it from there. My hope is that this little radio play has helped make all of this a little bit clearer. I know it's helped me. Back when I started writing these episodes, I was having a deep, think about social media, about what it had become for me. I quit Facebook many years ago, but I well and truly had an addiction to Twitter. In 11 years, I've tweeted nearly 300,000 times. That's a lot by anyone's count. It started out as an experiment. I wanted to follow as many people as I could to understand what would happen when I had that many folks feeding my awareness. I follow about 14,000 people. That's a lot. And the thing I've learned is that maybe that's not such a great idea. There are moments, like when David Bowie died, that Twitter can be utterly magical, a space for sharing feelings and memories. But the rest of the moments, those have started to feel as though I've got a stream of angry, short-tempered people plugged right into my forehead. For the last year, I felt as though Twitter has only helped me feel angrier about things. So between the first episode and this one, I stepped away from Twitter. I didn't quit. My accounts are still there. I use them to keep folks aware of what I'm doing, like when I release an episode of The Next Billion Seconds or have an interview coming up on radio. But I found all of the anger too much. Turns out I'm not the only one having second thoughts. My producer, Alex Mitchell, told me that after the first episode aired, he quit Facebook. That's a huge thing and not something I'd ask anyone to do because it can cut you off from the people you love. But all of this points to something that we will explore further down the line on the next billion seconds. What happens after social media? What can we create to replace what we have now but isn't working for us? That's one of the big questions facing us over the next billion seconds. We'll link to all of the articles and all of the videos we've mentioned, including hyperreality, which I really think you should watch, on our website at nextbillionseconds.com because we want you to see the reality of the situation. Thanks to Lachlan, Smithy DLL on YouTube, for letting us share his interviews with the Pokemon Go players in Ride. And more thanks to the kind folks at the project for letting us use a clip from the interview that kicked all of this off. In our next episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we talked to two researchers at the forefront of quantum computing and learned that the deeper we go, the less true everything becomes. That's the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci. Thanking you for listening.